towards Gerrard! Hello! Hello! Here we go! Steven Gerrard puts a grain of doubt in the back of Milan. Mines! 35 yards and more. Too far for Ronaldo to think about it. Oh! Absolutely sensational! Came off a Dortmund head. Now Benzema. Surely sets a rebel! Welcome to the latest episode of The Book Club on Football Ramble Presents. I'm Kate Mason. I'm Jim Campbell. And this time out, our book takes us into the company of King Kenny, Suey, Cluffy, Sir Bobby, Glenn and Reg, and carries us to the sidelines of some of the most significant moments in football over the last 30 years. But the man with us today had a playing career that peaked at the age of three. The author shares with us what it takes to be a commentator at the top of his game, because if anyone knows, he does. Today we're reading Not For Me Clive by Clive Tilsley. It's towards Michael. It's comfort to White York. Cleared. Gates with a shot. Sheringham! Beckham. Into Sheringham. And Solskjaer has won it! We're speaking with a man whose commentating charts you'd have found on the wall of Sir Alex Ferguson's office. Someone who may have narrated some of the greatest moments you've seen on a football pitch. Whose voice carried United to the treble in 1999 and identified the shoots of a comeback for Liverpool in Istanbul. As ITV's lead commentator for 22 years, Clive is one of very few people in the world who earned exactly the job he'd dreamed of. And he got to live and work alongside his heroes, sharing his stories from the voice of football with us in this book. For this episode of Book Club, we're speaking with Clive Tilsley about his book, Not For Me, Clive. Clive, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with Jim and me today. I don't think I've got anything to add to that. Uh, So thank you very much indeed. Um, You've covered it all and um, enjoy. We'll see you later. Bye-bye. Lovely. Oh, I'm I'm glad you feel that way. Um, I suppose the first thing we wanted to know was any number of people you've, as I mentioned there, any number of people you've worked closely with would fascinate pretty much any football reader. How difficult was it to select the people you wanted to feature closely in your book? Um, They are a strand, a thread in the book, really. The the names of each chapter that um, you've just alluded to, um, the great and the good of, of football and broadcasting that I've been fortunate enough in the main to know very well um, or to be associated with in some way. I mean, the Fergie chapter isn't specifically about Sir Alec Ferguson. Um, it's about power, really, and management. Um, the Big Ron chapter is a good example, which is not about Big Ron at all. It's about how we deal with racism in, in football and in life. So, I mean, the book is, I guess, semi-autobiographical, but it's certainly not an autobiography. It has some anecdotes, but it is not a collection of stories. Um, There are references to all of the people um, that you've just talked about, and yet it's not about them either. Um, I was asked by the publisher to come up with some kind of strap line as to what exactly the book is. I mean, they just pay me some money and publish the damn thing. Now they now they wanted to know what it was. And I said, uh, it's like having a conversation with me in which you don't get to say anything. That's the book. So there's um, 
there's a bit in the book, Clive, where you, where you are talking about Sir Alex Ferguson because there's a huge, huge range of of of, of characters that pop up throughout it, and obviously, if, as you've just alluded to, it's a lot more than you just saying, "I met this person and I met that person." It's just, it's it's also it's a sort of almost a how-to guide of how to be a commentator as well. What drives you as a commentator? There's so many different things in it, but there's there's a particular bit I was drawn to and a little bit unnerved by, um, I suppose, and I don't really. What, I feel bad to have to make you relive such a thing, but you have been on the end of Sir Alex Ferguson's famous hairdryer in a hotel lobby. So none of us have ever seen it. We've all heard about it. But can you can you take us through what that's actually like in, in reality when it's happening to you? Well, I didn't know it was coming. So um, there is a quite literally shock and awe. Um, shock that I've walked into this, um, walked straight onto a, a major punch verbal punch to the nose and awe at the scale and intensity of it. Um, mine didn't last very long. You don't argue back, even though I did have an argument back, even though it was a total misunderstanding and I hadn't really crossed him. Uh, but his perception at that moment was that I'd crossed him badly and that wasn't the time to point out that he was wrong. Uh, so I took it on the ears for the, I guess, 15, 20 seconds that it lasted. I guess I went bright red. I, I did feel as if my body temperature had, had risen a few degrees. Um, and I made my exit. Um, I, I'd only just arrived in a taxi with the lovely Bob Wilson to receive um, the uh, the kind of private uh, inside track briefing that Alex very kindly uh, gave the commentators uh, before a major Champions League game. The hotel was in Port Olympic in Barcelona. Uh, it wasn't the, the final, but it was that season. Manchester United played Barcelona in the group stage earlier in the season. And, um, I, yeah, at the taxi, <laughs> fortunately, the taxi was still there. So I was able to get back into it and make my uh, retreat and then try to pick up the pieces at a later date. And, uh, fortunately, he's still talking to me. Well, you sort of thought you were going to be able to talk to him about it subsequently, didn't you? Because there were two moments of hairdryer interaction. I've, 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 I've crossed him twice, which is twice more than most people do and get away with it. Um, unfortunately, there was um, a perfectly reasonable explanation to Alex for all of this. Um, and he's accepted the explanation, not least because once the full circumstances became apparent, we'd probably better tell one of these stories, had we? Uh Otherwise, people have no idea what, what we're talking. Which which one do you want? The um, Halifax or Barcelona? Barcelona. <laughs> uh, yeah. Barcelona was the the group game between Barcelona and Manchester United in the um, kind of early autumn of '98, and um, one of Stradic's most trusted um, media. <laughs> well, I say one. One of them, one of the three or four trusted media confidants that he had was the great Hugh McElvaney. And Hugh had written in his Sunday Times preview of the game that I was going to commentate on the, I guess, the Wednesday night, um, that uh, Phil Neville, who was playing right back at the time, Gary Neville was playing at centre-back for Manchester United. Phil Neville may be left out of the team uh, and Wes, Wes Brown preferred because quite apart from being a brilliant footballer, Rivaldo um, was a big unit and... Uh, and, and Stradic felt that that might be an aerial weakness on that flank. So he was thinking of playing West Brad. Now, I read between the lines that that 
it, it, so so Wes Brown was, I knew the relationship that Hugh had with Stralic, so I guess that was Jen. So I had Wes Brown on my team sheet. Unbelievably, the night before, I was in a hotel in Barcelona and I got into the lift and who got in with me but the late now, Neville Neville. The, the father was called Neville, a lovely man. And um, on the way from ground to whatever floor we went up to, Neville confided in me that Phil was concerned he might be left out of the team. And all I said to him was, well, all I can tell you is that if he, if, and I definitely use the word IF, if, if he is left out of the team, Nev, it will only be because uh, Rivaldo's tall and he might prefer Wes just for this game. Well, um, Nev didn't go straight to bed. He phoned Phil to inform him that Clive Tilsley knew the team already and, uh, and that, in fact, he wasn't playing, whereas Brown was playing in his place. So Phil told Gary and Gary uh, confronted the manager at breakfast the next morning, you know what's coming here. Oh, how come Clive Tilsley knows the team? We don't. I didn't know the team. I'd only read the Sunday Times. Uh, so when I arrived at lunchtime on the day of the game um, for a, a cup of tea and, uh, say, some inside info from the man himself, uh, yeah, I walked onto the hairdryer. And that's the quality of this book, isn't it, really, Clive, is that you can, you can talk to us about these things of which we've heard so much but you're in the privileged position, perhaps not in the case of the hairdryer, but you're in the position of having experienced a lot of them, not just happening on the pitch, but things like that firsthand. Yeah, well, that's what journalists do. I mean, I, I, when when I talk, as I do quite uh, regularly and, and with a, a lot of enthusiasm to media undergraduates, um, because I get as much back as, uh, you know, I might be able to uh, give to them, and I asked them to define what the role of the communicator, the professional communicator is. It is that um, I often relate to the, the guy Pheidippides um, who ran from the Battle of Marathon back to Athens to um, tell the people of Athens the, the outcome of the battle. I, I, I call him the first journalist, the first broadcaster. The, the, the tale is that when he arrived in Athens, he said, we won and then collapsed and died, um, which even though he's the first journalist, he probably wasn't a very good journalist. It would better if he'd said Greece won or because they then had to work out who <laughs> we were. <laughs> Is that good or bad? I don't know. He's dead. So, so for that, but that's what we do. We, we are given a ticket, a free ticket, usually on the halfway line um, to witness an event. And obviously in the last year, that's been very opposite because um, no fans have been allowed to witness the events that we have. And essentially, we report back. Um, obviously, a, a lot of the content is now available live on television or whatever kind of device you watch live sport on. And so the commentary in a visual medium like television is, is a different animal to when I'm working for talk sport, where you are actually describing the action like Pheidippides. Um, but that's what we do. We, 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 that's that's our, our role. Uh, we are the bridge between the doers and the watchers. And, and it's a very privileged position. It's one that I'm not precious about because anybody can do it, really. It's not like we save lives. We're not surgeons or anything. Um, but it, it's kind of an important role with a lot of responsibility, I think. I, and I do take it very seriously. And I think you know, when you say it's kind of a, that there's almost a guide to commentary, 
in the book, Jim. It is because I do, I, you know, I do think it is important that now I am lucky to do the job that I always wanted to do. That I t- at least I people would take the piss out of me all they like. That's fine, and, and haters away you go. Take your best shot. But I'm actually trying to get it right. I'm not actually trying not to make you laugh or make you angry. I'm trying to communicate through my own love for football, but mainly through the privilege of, of being granted access to inside track, um, what it's like. And, and it is a recurring theme in the book that I actually was brought home from the, from the nursing homes, it was the hospital, to a house next door to the manager of my lo- local town's football club, the Berry football manager. We lived next door to the Berry manager. His wife went with my mum to, you know, to, to bring me home. And so in that sense, I was inside the game from the beginning because I always saw the game from the point of view of somebody who got a living from the game rather than just loved the game and watched it. And it is a, there is a demarcation there, which you guys will have experienced in the last few years because you were very much outsiders and now you've been granted some access to the inside. And you do view the sport a little differently once you're kind of part of it. And I've been very, very fortunate to be a part, a small part of football for 133 years now. <laughs> you uh, you talk at the beginning, uh, or, or certainly in the part of the book where you're describing your own childhood and your own youth, Clive, about... Um, visiting Old Trafford as a fan and being just absolutely mad about Man United. And obviously, um, being a commentator, you have to be impartial and you, you talk about that happening at one point. Um, how, do you, how do you do that? How do you detach yourself from, from supporting a club? Because it is, it's so unique, isn't it? It's, there's, there's not really anything else comparable to it than, than, than being attached to your sports team. But obviously, if you, if you want to do the job that you, that you, that you do, it, it's so important. So did you... Was there any? Did you have a moment where you had to go? All right, Man United, I've got to put you down and just sort of love everything equally. I, I, I just, how, how did you do that? Well, it wasn't a conscious decision. It happened to me, and it doesn't happen to every commentator. Quite a few of of my brethren um, are still as um, um, yeah attached to their football clubs as they were before. Um, you know, they gained access to the. Um, to the, to the dream job that, that we do. Um, in my case, I think because I got into local radio straight from university and I was commentating on football, certainly reporting and, and commentating on football within, I guess, six months. So I was still, I guess, 22 years of age. I was the same age as the players. And, um, and so they were my mates. And because... The, the team that I was covering home and away at the time, which was Nottingham Forest prior to their promotion, Brightcliffe was the manager, but this was just before it all took off. Um, and I was traveling on the team coach, traveling in their private carriage on the train to away games. I would spend probably most of my week hanging around city ground, waiting for interviews. And then when we came back on a Saturday night, I'd go out with these guys, you know, they say they were, they were my pals. And that's, that, that was the change that came over me. It wasn't a, a big sort of road to Damascus moment. It just, um, it, yeah, I, 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 I was commentating on my mates. And to this day, I, I still am. You know, who do I support? Well, um, yeah, I, as I say in the book, you know, Gareth was, Gareth Southgate was at our wedding. So, uh, I, yeah, I'm an Englishman and I want the England team to do well. 
but I really want this England team to do well because my mate is in charge and I know what he goes to. I know how much he cares. I can't tell you that he's a great manager. There's a chapter about Gareth in the book or around Gareth in the book, more about the England manager's job and how different it is from, from any other and about the English football media and everything. So that that's all in that chapter. But yeah, I know Ali. I, 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 I bet the kids, I know I, my insight into him goes deep in so much that I was messaging him during the game last night. We were, we, you know, we were discussing stuff, which I can't tell you uh, during the game last night, but he's my pal. He's my mate. I know, I know he's a good guy. I know how much he cares um, about whichever team he's managed, whichever team he's played for. And if I can relate a little bit of that, uh, then I will, but it doesn't prevent me from being in a situation where I was with the previous England manager who also I have a very close personal relationship with. My wife and I have been out for dinner with Roy and Sheila Hodgson. He's a great, great guy. Um, and yet, you know, a minute from the end of the England-Iceland game in front of 20 million people, I had to say that he'll have to go, you know. I mean, and, you know, they so my affiliation to Manchester United disappeared a long, long, long time ago. It was replaced by an affiliation to my mates. And if there is... Um, a difficulty in the job in, in from an editorial point of view, it is when you're condemning your, your, your pals to a, either a bad performance or in this case, really to the sack. Well, that's exactly the question that really interests me and in, it interested me reading the book. I noticed you miss out Sam Allardyce there in the England uh, <laughs> managerial roster, but we'll, we'll just skim over that. Um, was this idea of these friendships? Because, of course, some of the things that, say, Gareth Southgate or, I mean, you say that Sir Alex is not, you wouldn't call him a friend. He's more like a friendly professional contact. Um, but some of the things that these gentlemen are saying to you or communicating with you are more valuable to, you know, they're valuable to you in your profession. So would you say it's a case of while you're coexisting as friends, you're also making if you like, editorial judgments while you're in their company? How does that work? Well, I think it's funny. You mentioned before, Jim, the, the, the very special relationship between the, the football fan and his or her club. It's actually a little bit like parenthood. And, um, you know, being a touchline dad is just one of the most wonderful experiences in life, particularly if you love football like I do. And um, w- watching my son play... I was filled with a kind of pride that I can't easily find the words to describe. But if he scored a goal and then did a stupid celebration, I would be the one muttering and mumbling about him on the touchline. And all the other mums and dads would be telling us, he was great, I was great. Oh, yeah, I don't like the celebration. Yeah, go get back to the halfway line. Come on, get on with it. And we're a bit like that with our clubs, aren't we, with our teams, that – we're actually harder on them than anybody else is. But just let one opposing parent take it out of my boy and I'd, I'd be rolling my sleeves up ready to fight. And we're, we're like that with our teams, that, yeah, we can call them every name under the sun. You know, we can be a Tottenham fan and say, well, actually, Kane's a bit overrated in truth. But just let somebody at Arsenal or any other fan had said anything about anybody, even I don't know who's kind of a, a, out of Harry Winks, and we're on them. No, no, he's mine. You can't, you you can't. I can call. So it's a strange 
relationship. And so when you're friendly with these guys, you, you, you do kind of divorce it and, and you're able to, I mean, there are a couple of stories in the book, the, the one about interviewing David Jones, you know, when he was on the verge of the sack at, at Walls. And that that's a difficult situation. And that I probably learned a life lesson from that. But people like Gareth Southgate and Roy Hodgson understand that we have a personal relationship and then I've got a job. And my job is to be as objective as I possibly can. And you maybe even correct yourself a little bit. Maybe when you are commentating on a match which involves a good friend, just like you were a little bit harder on your own son than the rest of the parents, you're probably a little bit harder on them or you find yourself trying to, you know, trying to be fair and in doing so, straying towards unfairness. There is uh, there is one moment in the book I was absolutely delighted to hear more about because we've, we've been making the Football Ramble for a long time. And over the years, something we've been fascinated by and our listeners have been fat- fascinated by have been Martin O'Neill's cold case murder investigations. Now, <laughs> you, you know Martin well and, and, you, and you, you write about this at length. I mean... I'm fascinated by this. Were you tempted to join him? Were you? Is he as obsessed as people sound? As people say he is, will he just start talking about murder and get his get his case files out? This is this is amazing to me. Absolutely, he is. I'm going. To, I'll give you an exclusive now. There's something I didn't even dare put in the book, and he might not forgive me for this, but he is. He was my first big friend in football, and he remains uh, one of my. Uh, firmest friends and one of my very favorite friends. His company is right up there. If you were putting together that that kind of fantasy lunch with four or five people from football, Martin would definitely be at the table. And nobody else would get a word in edgeways, by the way. He is, you know, he was studying law. People who don't know, he was studying law at Queen's University in Belfast when football came knocking at his door. Um, he has been, you know, a European Cup winning midfield player, Northern Ireland World Cup captain. He would have been an even better adversarial lawyer. He, yeah, he actually, it's difficult to say about somebody who's had such a successful career, but he missed his vocation. Um, he, that's what he should have been. And in many ways, I, I, crikey, he's passionate about football, but he is as passionate um, about particularly criminal law. Uh, there's a very famous case from... I guess the late 50s, 60s, uh, Hanratty. And he's absolutely, I can't remember. Yeah, Hanratty was guilty. I think he's absolutely convinced Hanratty was not guilty, you know? And when uh, Geraldine was pregnant, I think with their first child, uh, and this is the exclusive, and this is slightly macabre, I'm afraid, he took her to queue outside, I guess it was the Old Bailey, for the public gallery because he wanted to see Peter Sutcliffe in the flesh. Now, that is kind of a little chilling. And if Mail Online get hold of it, they'll have a feel. You know, Boris, is, Boris will be off the front pages for five days. But, but actually, it wasn't anything other. And you can kind of understand if you've got a passion about anything, you, you know, the chance to actually be in the presence in the same room as such a terrible, cold, serial killer was something that he wanted to experience. So poor old Geraldine had to queue outside the court just to go in and listen to this, you know, one of the, the worst men in sort of modern British history, probably probably say not guilty, Your Honour, or something. Of course. <laughs> to be fair, I think he was far from alone at the time, wasn't he? It was 
the media was very different in terms of how these things were treated at the time. So, they, they, I mean, there were, there were huge, huge crowds of people who had gone down there to see that, but it's still, it, it's still yeah. very in keeping with what we, what we know about um, his fascination with such cases. Jim wants to cancel the whole rest of the podcast and just talk about that full stop. Yeah, now. I mean, <laughs> I can see I, it. I don't know whether you want the podcast to be kind of readings from the book, but the story very quickly, Kate, is that there was a very famous murder in on Merseyside where I was working in local radio, and Martin was playing for Norwich City at the time, and came up on the Friday and stayed in a hotel overnight. And um, I, I, you know, I popped down to have a coffee with him when they arrived and, and he sneaked out. I mean, I, I guess illegally. Uh, and I, where were we going? We're going to, um, I, I want to say 10 Rillington Place, but that wasn't the place, but that's what it looked like. It looked like the setting for 10 Rillington Place. It was this um, kind of uh, forbidding Gothic house in a, in a cul-de-sac in a working class sort of terraced area. And this is where the murder had taken place. And Martin wanted to see it. And sure enough, okay, we sit and look as we might have looked at Sutcliffe who we'd have been in care. Martin was out the, out the car, knocking on the front door. He wanted to see the room where the murder had. And so these poor Mr. and, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Mason were sat at home just getting the sort of early evening meal on. And this mad Irishman arrives and saying, can I come and look at your lounge? Why? Well, that's where the murder was taken. So, oh my. so he needed to go and I'm see so- it. Yeah. Oh my goodness! Is I can see why you're saying that his his vocation was not the one that he ended up pursuing. Someone else uh, I did just want to hear a little bit from you about is Glenn Hoddle, a uh, bit of a hero of mine. It, it, uh, you say that all of your chapters are focused on different elements. What was I felt that one was one where you were sort of defending him as a as a really high quality co commentator for a large part of that chapter. It felt as though that was a moment where you really. Your French, you, your friendship, and your professional support of someone was something you wanted to cover. Yeah, he is a, an incredibly decent human being. Um, it, he's not your typical footballer in many ways. He, he wasn't typically. Uh, he was more gifted than nearly every other footballer. Although I do make the point that he worked very hard to appear uh, uh, gifted. Um, but he's 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 a gentler man than than a lot of football people, a lot of competitive sportsmen and women that. Uh, that you meet, and and then that makes him um, a, a, a really kind of soulful friend. And, and obviously, when you go to a major tournament together, you spend a lot of time with a co-commentator, not just in the commentary box, but um, in airports and in the backs of cars, in 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 you know Sao Paulo traffic jams and, and the likes. And uh, he is fantastic company. Um, the the co-commentator, like the commentator, is very much a matter of opinion. And, you know, as, uh, as I say, Barry Davis once said to me, one man's commentator is another man's pain in the arse. And, and we get that. We understand that. And I understand why some people don't think that Glenn's a good co-commentator. What he is, I think, beyond any doubt, is a qualified co-commentator. And what is the role of the co-commentator, in my opinion? It is the person who's been down there in the middle, cross the white line, where most of us will never go and has the capacity to come back and tell us about it. It's one thing to go there and experience it and have a career in whatever sport. It's another It's another thing completely to be as good as Nasser Hussain or Martin Brundle uh, or Lawrence Delalio and actually come back and tell the rest of us what it's like in, in terms that we can understand and identify with. And I'm not saying that Glenn is the most lucid um, 
speaker about football we've ever heard. I actually say in the book he's a bit Eliza Doolittle. Um, but that's how he spoke to Gaza. That's how he spoke to Shearer. That's how he spoke to to uh, to, to Gareth. Um, and Who does that make his uh, Henry Higgins then, Clive? Sorry to cut <laughs> yeah, that's good. Is that you? No, I don't think so. I hope I'm not quite <laughs> arrogant. <laughs> Although I, I, uh, I can probably border on... I, I can get... A, 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 for somebody who uh, crucifies the English language probably every time that he picks up a microphone, I can get quite pedantic about the correct use of words. So maybe I would be a little bit of a... In Hertfordshire, Hereshire, and Hampshire, Hurricanes, hardly ever. I hate, I hate commentators say say bin instead of bean. It's really kind of lazy language there. Anyway, that I I digress. Glenn, and I think it. I I, I refer to some in you know pretty caustic um, criticism that Danny Baker has made about Glenn a few years ago now, but nonetheless, I, I think it was totally uncalled for. It's a little bit to do with my view on how we encourage and authenticate social media to the point that we create the monster that we then end up criticising and becoming victims of. But um, that, that's, that's a side issue. Now, I've, I just think that if you're commentating on England in a major tournament and the guy is lucid enough to communicate with you, what better than to have one of the handful of men in modern times who's actually been through this experience and can tell us what it's like? And um, I mean, listen, ITV's decision is fine. It, I, I was upset and disappointed and surprised at the time. And Glenn went at the same time as I did. I think Lee Dixon actually is one of the very best studio analysts that I've ever seen. I mean, literally top four studio analysts. Um, and I, in my humble opinion, in not that humble opinion, whatever it is, um, you know, I think Glenn was the right man to be there calling the game with the with Sam or me or whoever it was because he's he's been there, seen it, done it, and he can tell us about it. And I actually think Lee is probably better employed at halftime and full time to analyse the game. But that's my personal opinion, and as I say, it's all about opinions, and I respect the opinions of uh, of my bosses at ITV and the decision they took last year. Clive, we're going to come on. I'm, some of the stuff that, that where you talk about the real nuts and bolts of commentary is some of my favourite in the book. So we're going to come on to that um, shortly, but we need to just take a quick break now and then we'll be back with more of the book club. Kicks. Rooney! Welcome back to the book club with Jim and me and today with Clive Tilsley talking about his book Not For Me Clive. We've covered some of the incredible people that you've known and loved really throughout the course of your uh, commentary, your ongoing, your certainly still ongoing commentary career as you as you say at the end of the book. Um, and we've spoken about some of those friendships that have made your professional life so rich. Uh, some of the bits Jim and I didn't necessarily expect to find in the course of this one uh, featured some sort of, shall we say, more intimate uh, areas of your life, particularly one moment in a bivouac. Um, how did you decide how far you were going to go in terms of telling your life story and how, how personal uh, you planned to make it? You're not seriously asking me to believe that you didn't lose your virginity in a bivouac too. <laughs> isn't that 
isn't that where we all did it for the first time? No? <laughs> I can't say mine was in a, in a bivouac, Clive. Um... <laughs> That's kind of what I'll, I'll see your king ace and I'll raise it with two aces of my own. <laughs> yes, I, I have lost my virginity I, and it was a long time ago and I do allude to it very briefly, very, very briefly. And that is the only sexual escapade that uh, appears sadly in this book. I, obviously, the second book is coming. Uh, well, coming to possibly the wrong word but it will be available uh, at end time if anybody is any interest and particularly if there is a demand for for more about my uh, love life but in the meantime i've written mainly about my professional life and i'm sorry if that's disappointed you kate but i i felt i felt <laughs> i would start there and then maybe as my literary career grows i i would move on to 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 more intimacy and a more body part detail would that would that be okay Build up to Fifty Shades of Clive, perhaps. Yay. Yeah, or, per- or perhaps you could com- collaborate with Mr. O'Neill on some uh, some Clive novels in the in the manner of Steve Bruce. I, I don't know. Okay, but so how? But Clive, you know, as we were talking about, you you were interpolating different bits of your life with your commentary life. How how far did you? In a more, to ask that in a more serious way, how wh- to what extent did you want to talk about the the real inner parts of your of your life? I don't think there's anything. I mean, I think there are, there are probably half a dozen instances and no more where I'm particularly critical of somebody for for whatever reason. It already alluded I didn't like Danny Baker's, but that particular criticism of of Glenn doesn't mean I I don't know Danny as it happens, but it, it doesn't mean I don't like him. I just didn't like that. Um, how far do you go in terms of, I mean, it's not, as I say, autobiographical. So, I mean, I'm divorced. I, I was divorced uh, 103 years ago now. Um, I'm very, very, very happily remarried. Um, I don't think that's, it was of no particular relevance to the way that my career was shaped. So, therefore, it, the, you know, you, this is not warts and all. Uh, it's it's not all. It's no, nothing like all. The very what I, what I've done just to explain is all of the chapter headings and all of the chapter contents really are are about these famous people like Brian Clough and Bill Shankly and um, Ceradic Ferguson that I've been fortunate enough to come close to. And then between each chapter, there's a very brief bridging chapter of uh, like three or four hundred words, which tells you where I'm up to in my career as I as we go through. So yeah, I. I allude to to where I was schooled, where I was educated, university, and then the different radio stations and TV companies. And again, try to throw in a little story from that little period in my life, how the breaks came along and so on. But no, I've been very, very fortunate in all aspects of of my life. And, um, you know, I, I, I do, my wife's my best friend quite apart the person I wake up next to every day. Um, our children are amongst our best friends. They're, they're wonderful. Um, you know, I've, I have done the job that I've wanted to do so far and hopefully will continue. So I haven't, you know, I haven't got, there isn't a backstory. I, I you know, I, I haven't, uh, I haven't got any, I've, I've got no real perception of misfortune or, a depression or a, a lot of things that are very much out there at the moment. Um, and I think probably the racism chapter comes closest to this. And, and, and one of the themes when I write about racism in football was um, an incident which happened 
the season before last uh, when some of the England players were, were abused in Sofia. And I said something in the commentary uh, when I got a close-up of Raheem Sterling saying, what must he feel like? I will never know. And, um, you know, the, in, in the same way, I, I will never know what people who've suffered major depression or mental illness or gender dilemmas or I, I, my life's been really pretty ordinary and, and plain sailing in that respect. So, no, there isn't a great deal of, of, of backstory in, in that respect because the backstory is a bit dull. Um, the more interesting things really have been done and said with a microphone in my hand. You talk quite a lot, Clive, about um, about Twitter and social media, and obviously you've alluded to it, to it already with, with Danny Baker and, and Glenn Hoddle, um, but also about, and, and of course within the, the, the racism section that you're talking about before, and you seem very, very passionate about it, and I can completely understand that as well, because I don't think there is a single commentator or pundit on TV that I've not seen criticism of on social media, to the point where it is just... It's just absolutely absurd. Like it, it seems that there are people who are waiting, and in fact enjoying criticizing people. And obviously, you've you've been at the, you're, you've you've been doing what you do for such a long time. And I, I guess w- within the media, how 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 has that changed the way the media operates from from, from the inside? Because it's something you never had to deal with before, or certainly not on that sort of scale. Someone would have to really make an effort to 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 criticize. Um, but are you, are you sort of trained within within organisations now? Is it is it something that's actually that 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 the media is trying to deal with from the inside? Because I can imagine it's 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 maddening. Yeah, but in the same, you know, in the same breath of what I've just said, I'm not really particularly well placed to advise people who are sufficiently vulnerable as to be, um, you know, disturbed um, or have their life changed by. What is outside comment looking in it, it can definitely affect your career. Your career can disappear in a second, um, you know, because of the scrutiny of social media. But the absurdity, you use the word absurd, and this is probably the, the overriding message of my analysis of social media, is the authenticity and the credibility that we give it. Um, it is not an opinion poll. It's not a canvassed opinion poll. Um, and yet, I, again, I... I, I Communication, let alone sports media, moves forward by the day. And part of my job as a professional within the business is to keep step with with those advances. And the fact that we have four children in their 20s is is one of the you know the the best sort of touchstones for me to understand in the different ways in which media is um, both created and consumed. But there are still basic editorial values that. I was given right at the start of my career, which I think hold. And it's a little bit um, what I was talking about, Glenn Hoddle. You, you've got authenticity if you've managed England. I, it doesn't mean that nobody else is entitled to an opinion. But as Graham Taylor said, and I put in the book, however much thought you've given to my team selection, believe me, I've given 10 times more to it. I may have got it wrong and you may, got it, may have got it right. But it's not been for the lack of care and attention and experience and investment and commitment that I've got it wrong. It's just football's a little bit like that. It's easy to get things wrong. And so to give as much airtime to uh, Andy from um, you know, where Harrow says it's time for clock to go. I mean, why, why would you read that out on national radio? 
Is are you just trying to be cool? And you know, social media is out there; it's a big part of our lives. And Andy's got every right to an opinion, as Chris Sutton and Robbie said. Well, no, he hasn't. I'm sorry; he may be a bot. He may not even exist. You, you, you've got no relationship with that. He's got no, no credence, real, true credibility. He's entitled to his opinion, of course, he is, and he's entitled to put it on Twitter. But when I'm watching kind of conventional broadcasting. And if I'm watching, yeah, I've seen cricket matches live where suddenly tweets from people watching have appeared on the screen. I've, I've got a device. I can look at Twitter. It's quite all right. You no need to show it. I've turned this on to watch the cricket and listen to people who played cricket, analyze it and commentate on it so I can enjoy the experience as a cricket fan. I, the, the the reaction of people on social media is a separate entity which I can go to. There is no need to 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 feature these people in mainstream broadcasting, in my opinion, unless they really are carrying the story forward. But I think it's difficult to do that unless you've you've got some experience and therefore you can authenticate your view from that experience. I think that's what journalism is about. It's about going to the scene of the crime about talking to the witnesses, about evaluating the situation, about gathering as much information, sifting it, editing, and then presenting a wider picture. It's not about just throwing in strands of it in a rather haphazard fashion and kind of hoping that it somehow makes sense. I don't think that's broadcasting. I don't think that's communication. On the subject of knowing your craft and thinking about it more than the next man would have done, you're speaking about it in the case of football management, but it's clear also reading your book that this is the case for you as a commentator. And something I really enjoy in the book is when you talk about some of your fellow commentators and their qualities. And and at one point, having uh, jostled against the man you would eventually take over from at ITV, Brian Moore, you tell us that though you believed at the time you were better... You never were better and never would be. How did you come to that conclusion? With experience. And, and experience is not just the number on your birth certificate. It is your experiences. That, that's where experience comes from and how you use it. I mean, some people use experience to become ever more blinkered and ever more certain that, that you know, the, the version of life that they arrived at after whatever 30, 40, 50 years on, on the planet is the right one. I think parenthood helps keep those blinkers off. It's part of your responsibility as a parent to see the world from the point of view of if you're going to, if you're going to love your children, you've got to empathize with them and, and, and see the difficulties. And I think, I mean, I listen, all, all the difficulties that people have suffered in the last year, I mean, are real difficulties, you know, the tragedy, the true tragedy, losing life and losing a capacity to live life in the way that you want. I felt particularly sorry for young people, even some 21-year-old millionaires who are living their, their dream as a, as a footballer, and suddenly maybe they're single. I, I mean, how are they supposed to actually enjoy this, you know, the privilege that their talent has brought their way? It is, And sometimes it's different. And old people are judgmental. Oh, buddy fool, you know. Well, we can't be judgmental of people who are you know, half or a third of our age, because just like Raheem Sterling and Sophia, I've never been there. My life wasn't like that when I was 21 years of age. And we're so judgmental. There are, there are so many people in the most uncertain year that I have spent on the planet, 
And as you know, I've spent a lot of years on the planet. There are so many people who are certain, certain of their viewpoint, certain of their standpoint, to the point that if you even dare to ask a question, let alone disagree with them, you know, you're, you're cast as some kind of infidel. And, and, and of course, that's amplified on social media. I know I sound a little bit preachy at times and I maybe sound a little bit preachy in the book, but I think we, I mean, one of the other problems with Twitter for me is that, you know, our life is le- is lived by our own Twitter feed. And uh, I wake up every morning and look at my phone and it's, it's full of remainers like me. Well, we're bloody well out. <laughs> so, you know, I, I mustn't have been, we, we mustn't have been in the majority. We I, I clearly, it was a very small, uh, minor, a, a very large minority, but um, you, you've got to look wider than that. You've got to, you've got to be more understanding. And particularly if, if you ever get the opportunity to broadcast to 20 million plus, then you really, you know, you really are talking to the nation. And so you've got to, as, as Reg used to, to say to me, don't commentate to the manager, commentate to your grandma. She counts one, two, you know, commentate, be inclusive, welcome everybody in, everybody in young, old, black, white, male, female. That's when you've got an audience of 20 million, which, you know, Guy Mowbray and I were both broadcasting to during the last World Cup, alternately on the England games. Um, again, I, I've, I've said it's it's like going up to the high board. Come up with us. You come up and try the really, really high tariff dives where if you get one thing wrong, you're on the front page of the mail. You know, you're not just some aside in some column somewhere just in from the back page. You're right out there on the front page if you get it wrong. And so um, it, it, you, you better think about it and get it right because, that, A, that's your responsibility, and, B, it's your career if you get it wrong. So, Clive, you are obviously, you know, you were ITV's lead commentator for a long, long time, but you are now also working with Amazon Prime. So I think we're all, you know, we're all broadly in agreement that streaming sites are probably going to be the future of football broadcasting. So having a bit of insight into that what's different at amazon is there is there anything that what does it feel like on the inside of that is it quite an exciting thing presumably it's quite new yeah i think the great thing is they don't know um right and it goes back to what i've just said there are too many certain people out there at the moment in very uncertain times and i think they are dipping their toe in the water i think it's important from the premier league's perspective um that there is somebody else to come and dip the toe in the water and try and make a market. I do think that the subscription model that we've lived with since um, Sky got into bed with the new Premier League alive and kicking in, in uh, 1992 is, um, I can't say it's dying, but I think I think the consumers become smarter. Um, I think you see it in lots of, you know, your local gym are much more likely to offer some kind of, you know, pay-as-you-enter kind of deal now than the old sort of annual subscription where uh, we signed up with the best intentions in January and um, by October we'd have forgotten where the gym was. I mean, that doesn't work in in everybody. It's, it's a little bit like um, football fans know where to find. I, we, we get lots of promos to read out during the course of a game. And, and it always begins with, and don't forget. I never, I never say that. Because, what, what, with the, with the, and don't, don't forget. Know. Yeah, yeah. We, we'll, it'd be better if we just told them, wouldn't it? You know, rather than and. But we, I mean, BT Sport will promo 
last night, tomorrow's Europa. Well, you kind of know it's on. I mean, it's been on there now forever. I mean, and the fact that it's on 2XD, 5, 3, 4, it's like Line of Duty. I don't understand. Like, you need you, you need a glossary to watch Line of Duty now. Everything's initials and things. And it's a little bit the same. Yeah, it's on BT Sport. Yeah. You no, know, look, just go on to Sky Plus and you'll find it. It's on the second page. And, and you'll find the match. Well, the, the modern audience know where now to find the match. Um, Amazon haven't quite reached that stage, but they, I think, are trying to investigate how you can monetize it. I think that's that's the issue now. There, there seem to be stories around just in the last 24 hours that BT Sport are thinking of tiptoeing out because it is, it's very difficult that the, the size of the rights, the way people are consuming their media, particularly people under the age of 30, um, I don't know how uh, our children get to see a lot of the games they do, and I don't want to know how they get to see how they. But I mean, we have got a lot of piracy in 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 the rights market, which is clearly diluting the value of the rights. There is a demand to watch it in smaller bites and and, and at different times, not necessarily live. And so you've got to adapt to that. So unless Amazon can find a way, a new way to monetize it. I, mean, I think the services like Now TV are doing very well at the moment where you can buy the match that you want to watch and then not watch any sport at all the following weekend, do something completely different and say it's a smarter audience that you've got. And, they, and the media platforms and indeed the game itself have got to adapt to that. Hence, you know, we are seeing some wild and wonderful new initiatives, some rather less than than wonderful. It is a little bit more difficult to make the number of bucks that you need to buy Erling Haaland now. Oh, what a de- what a dreadful place to end on. I was going <laughs> to, the final question I really wanted, we really wanted to ask was about, you, you of course end the book by talking about the end of your ITV Leeds commentary career, but talking about how, you, you know, there was no, necessary need to replace someone with a younger model because what are you going to do have different age categories of people commentating to different uh, ages of consumer very difficult um do you see the role of a commentator as one that will last even in this uh fractured media marketplace of football that you're talking about there yeah i mean uh, the customer will decide i think it's condescending to suggest that somebody of 30 years of age needs somebody of 30 years of age to communicate to them. Um, I think as long as um, whether you are 18 or whether you're 80, as long as you take on the responsibilities of communicating to a wide audience and to a changing audience and to a changing uh, media, uh, then you should still be capable of doing the job. There is now so much football available on TV. I don't think that it matters as much who the commentator is. I don't think we're as quite as big a part of the experience as we used to be. A lot of football is watched communally in bars and pubs and where you can't hear the commentator. Um, and I think there's a lot more now interaction going on with a second screen and stuff during the course of the game. That lovely notion from my childhood of, of three generations of a family gathering around the television set for a particular event um, has largely been uh, diluted. So the role of the commentator has to a degree. I think um, most of the personalities really around television broadcasting are studio-based now. They are the presenters and pundits. And yet, if you look at the profile of a viewing audience during the course of a game, 
um, people basically turn on for the match. Even even at half time, it, it, the, the numbers go down and then come back up when the game resumes. So, you know, the modern modern media editor or modern media uh, mogul has got to tune into all that. Has got to try to understand the market better and better. Um, and so I I've, I've got to try to offer whatever it is I've got to offer. Um, in that in that new landscape, and um, I'm certainly prepared to do that. Um, I say the ITV decision was disappointing. I was surprised; it was a surprise to me. So there was an element of shock. But in the grander scheme of things that I've already outlined, my life as a whole, um, it's fine. Uh, they've re- replaced me with not only with somebody I know, but somebody who's capable and somebody who's different. And I think that's probably the consolation for me. They haven't kind of tried to replace like with younger like. They've replaced me with Sam, who has a different kind of approach to to commentary. And that's cool. That's fine. I can kind of live with that um, much better than than if uh, if that hadn't been the case. So uh, I'm still part of, of ITV's coverage of the Euros this summer. Um, I've got some great fixtures in the first couple of, of weeks, you know, Spain versus Germany, et cetera, et cetera. There are plenty of other games happening beyond England, Scotland and Wales. So uh, I'll enjoy the experience. I'll enjoy working with people I haven't worked with for a little while because uh, I've been off the ITV scene. We've got FA Cup coming up now, back to ITV, so I'll be a part of that too. And I've already, in in the contract that I've signed with them, um, got a commitment for Qatar in, is is it the month after this World Cup? There are are two World Cups in one month, or two, is the European Championship and then the World Cup begins the next day or something like that anyway. It's not very long, is it? It's not very long. So, yeah, I'm I'm around, as you said, doing Amazon Prime and doing some radio, which I really, really enjoy, back to my roots to a degree. I'm doing uh, Champions League for the US of A, so that's all, you know, pretty exciting. And, yeah, busy commentary charts business is going uh, nicely, that's something new. Books coming out. Doing a couple of really naff television ads. You'd be pleased to know. So you oh, really? Re- oh, yeah, yeah. I, that, it, it's got to be done. It's, it's got to be done. Um, make, make a, if, if if other people are going to make a fool of me, it's much better if I get in there first. I think you're right. That that is seems like a good message to end on. And of course, this future book uh, that that you're doubtless going to pen now that we've. Yeah. Uh, We've yeah. discussed it all. I've I've got the idea, but you're not having it. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I mean, Clive, you. I get the sense there was never a danger you were going to use a ghostwriter because uh, there's so much passion in in the book, and you can really tell that you you've enjoyed it. And have you got a taste for it? Do you think you will do another book? Because you you can really feel how much you've enjoyed it coming off the page. I love writing. Yeah, I want to write fiction. Hey, um, we knew that's it. What I, Is it crime that's... crime writing crime thrillers? Steve Bruce style. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I, I'll read. I'll redo Line of Duty so that people can understand it, can understand the conversations. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to rewrite Line of Duty so that we can actually understand the conversations. I think it's all about the in jokes, isn't it, Clive? We know that on the ramble. Thank you so much. You're for a chiz. Us. You're a chiz. You're a chiz, and you've got a burner. I absolutely am. And uh, OG, thank- OG, they know about it. Uh, thank you again. It's been lovely to chat to you and. We'll catch the rest of you another time for another episode of Book Club on Football Ramble Presents. Hold up. 
This was a Stakhanov production and part of the Acast Creative Network.